called to me. We actually have a guest with us today. Uh, I heard Rand share his testimony. Uh, where is he at? He's hiding. I'm going to have him come. Come on up. Uh, Rand, I heard him share his testimony in 2020, and it really blessed me and really spoke to me. And then he sent out a letter, and when I was reading it, I felt, again, the presence of God just reading it. And so we picked a date, and it worked out to be such a blessing because that gave me uh, some time to uh, look at our church planning mission and all kinds of things and meet with some people I've been dying to meet with. So let's uh, put our hands together and thank Rand for coming and being our guest today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Good morning. I would like to take credit for the weather, but I don't have that kind of power, so I can't. But it is nice to see some nice weather here in northeastern Ohio. Um, I would... I, first of all, it's a privilege to be here at Rocker Grace Church, and I would like to thank your pastor for giving me the opportunity to share our testimony. Uh, the last time that I was in this part of the church, I was running up and down the floor refereeing a basketball game. So it's been, it's been a while. Um, not going to do a whole lot of opening remarks here and get into my testimony. Uh, I like to call this our story. God's glory. And folks, uh, many of you here have been through difficult times in your life. And it, in, it is in those times that we come to know our God in a very, very special way. And uh, that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. Uh, I hope that it encourages you in your faith. And I also hope it reaffirms the fact that we serve a God that is real and faithful. In 1987, at 32 years old, Linda and I had been married for 12 years. We were raising two sons. We had, we had owned our home, and I had worked at that time at the Trumbull County Auditor's Office for 14 years as a deputy county auditor slash appraiser. I was finishing my second term on the Maplewood School Board, and uh, in working in the auditor's office, I had run two countywide campaigns for the auditor at that time, one that re-elected him, I mean elected him, and then another that re-elected him. And because of that, I became fairly well-known in political circles in the county. And the auditor and I had talked that when he retired sometime in the 1990s, that I would then run for Trumbull County Auditor. So that became my dream, and that became my focus, and that became how I was going to make life better uh, for my family. In 1987, I decided to run for the position of Mecca Township Fiscal Officer. And I sought an opinion from the prosecutor's office that, uh, and they said that there would not be a conflict between the elected position and my current county position. As I am climbing this political ladder, I did not realize how it was affecting my wife. In November of 1987, I won that election, and the person that, had had, uh, that I had defeated uh, brought a lawsuit that said that I could not hold both positions. And it was then that I realized that the uh, opinion given by the prosecutor's office was not a correct opinion. So in April of 1988, I felt that people had voted for me and I needed to honor their vote. So I left my full-time position in the county auditor's office and I went into full-time insurance sales with my brother, Tim. 
Now, I want to clarify something before I go forward here. In those days, when a man was elected to this particular position, and you lived in a, a, you know, a smaller township, the office was in your home. And it was assumed that your wife would help you with some of the duties of that position. And Linda had handled book work at Biggins Furniture for some of you that go back a ways in Cortland for 12 years. So she handled that part of it. I took care of the other duties in my full-time sales position. In 1989, we went through six months of just different types of harassment. Uh, and I don't have the time to go into all of that, but it would go on for a week or so and then stop and then start up again two or three weeks later. Our 13-year-old dog was poisoned and died. Our home was broken into multiple times. Township records were taken, vandalized, and returned. Threatening phone calls were made to my wife. In the middle of the night, I, I received calls that said, we will destroy you. And our youngest son, Matt's life was threatened. And I really don't have any answers for this time. The sheriff's office investigated. Nothing was ever solved or any arrest made. So in the fall of 1989, this had went on for six months. And I could tell the toll that it was taking on Linda. And I didn't know exactly how it was affecting our children. And I remember I was standing in the kitchen one night, and I told Linda that this just can't go on anymore. We, we, this, this has got to come to an end. So we went upstairs to our bedroom, and she sat on the side of the bed, and I knelt down beside the bed. And I started to pray. And I told the Lord that in his word, he said he would never give us more than what we could bear. And I said, Lord, we're at that point. We need for you to intervene. And at that point in my prayer, uh, Linda interrupted my prayer. And in her voice, but not in how she would pray, these were the words that she spoke. I am the Lord your God. I have heard your prayers. I will honor them. I have built a hedge around you and your family peace hath come. At this time, I thought it was just for the present, but as we faced further test of our faith, as time went on, I realized that it was God's promise. I don't have a name or an explanation for this, but I was there and heard and saw it happen. And that night, the harassment ended. There was never any more instances of it. In 1991, I was reelected to my second term as township fiscal officer. And with eight years on the school board, four years as board president, 14 years in the auditor's office, I was building my resume to run for Trumbull County Auditor. In the insurance business between 1988 and 1993, I won trips to Germany, Austria, Las Vegas, Myrtle Beach, Caribbean Cruise, and Hawaii. And at that time in my life, I don't think I really asked God what to do. I asked him to bless what I decided to do. And in May of 1993, a phone call from the state auditor's office showed a $3,000 discrepancy in township funds. And I see my life at that time as a wave rising in the ocean. And Linda was devastated when my wave crashed. It would have been easier if I said this was a mistake and paid the money back. But I was still trying to hold on to my dream. And I believe this had happened during the harassment and was not Linda that did it, which is what the prosecutor believed. In September of 1995, I pled guilty to a dereliction of duty charge because I was ultimately responsible for those funds. I received probation, and Linda pleaded no contest to her change, 
charge. And we, made, we paid the money back to the township. I believe that this first time was a mistake. And at this point, I was convinced that Linda did not do this. In the 1995 election, to be reelected, I lost by 20 votes. And in 1997, the, the person that had defeated me resigned the position. And by a two-to-one vote, the trustees put me back in office. And I felt that God had restored this position to me. My father was diagnosed with terminal cancer in June of 1999. And in the November of 1999 election, after being appointed, I lost. And it was a bad loss. And I knew that my 20 years of holding elective office was over. In December of 1999, Linda took a trip to San Antonio. She had never lied to me in the 28 years that we had been together. And I never considered that she would. Now I want to stop here for a minute. The part that I'm going into next is, is difficult. And I want you to understand something. God called me to share this testimony. So he gives me the strength to share it. It isn't easy. Linda, when God called me to do this, I could not go forward, forward with this without her consent. And she gave that consent. This is the 12th church that we have been at. And what I'm going to go into here is not easy. But she has found out that people are encouraged through what I'm going to be talking about. And she knows it brings glory and honor to our Lord. And that is why we are here. I was not in a great place myself with my dad's illness to be more aware of her mental condition. And at 4.30 in the morning of the day that she was supposed to be coming home, she called and she calmly says, I'm not coming home. She hung up, and so I right away called back to the hotel and said, please, could I have Linda Cronister's room? And they informed me that there was no Linda Cronister registered at that hotel. Well, I'm human, and I started to panic. And after I panicked for a while, I was standing in front of our dresser, and I, I started to pray. And I asked God that he would somehow give me strength and wisdom to somehow deal with this because I, I, just, I didn't know what to do. So what I started to do, I didn't really have a plan. I started going through some papers that were on the dresser there. And when I went thinking I'd find an itinerary or something about the trip, and when I went to go across to the other side of the dresser with my hand, I brushed up against the doily, which was underneath a jewelry box. And that... When I did that, it moved it just a little bit, and I'd seen a small slip of paper underneath that doily. And what I'm telling you next basically is, is a miracle as I look back at this. When I pulled that slip of paper out, it had the name Amanda Milano on it. Amanda was one of the friends that Linda was supposed to be with in San Antonio. Milano was the last name of our attorney. So I called back to the hotel and says, I don't know how to explain this, my wife's name is Linda Cronister, uh, but I need to know if you have an Amanda Milano registered there. And they looked it up and they said, yes, she's been here for four or five days, and that was the same time period that Linda was supposed to be there. I said, listen, I'm really concerned about my wife. She called this morning, said she's not coming home. I need you to go to her room and check and make sure she's okay. I believe that this Amanda Milano is Linda. So about 10 minutes later, they called me back and they said, 
We went to the room. We felt that she was in the room, but she would not come to the door. And I said, then you need to get the police involved. And they were hesitant to do that. And I basically begged them to do that. And so about 20 minutes later, I get a call back from the police. And they said they went to Linda's room. They knocked on the door. They felt that she was in there, but she would not come to the door. And they went in. When they went into the room, they found a bathtub that was filling up with water. And on that bathtub on the side was a towel. And on that towel was two knives. And so, of course, they considered that to be a suicide attempt. And they took Linda to the nearest hospital. I flew down to San Antonio as quickly as I could. And the first place I went, of course, was to the hospital. And as I stood in the door of that hospital room, Linda's back was to me in the room. Her head was down. And she was a wreck. And I can remember as I walked through that door, I knew that our life as we knew it at that time was going to completely change. And I walked over to her, and I just put my hand on her back, and she never lifted her head. And I, and I simply prayed that God would touch her and heal her, even though I didn't have a clue at what all was wrong at that particular time. And I would find out later that it would take her five years to recover from this mental breakdown. Next, I went to the hotel room to pick up her belongings. And when I got to the hotel room, there was a stack of Christmas presents on the bed, all wrapped, with a note on top of them that said, Dear Rand and boys, by the time you open these presents, you will be over losing me, and you will be fine. Enjoy the gifts and know that I love you. As I said earlier, it would take five years for her to get over this, and it would be a result of counseling, medicine, and a lot of prayer by a lot of people. And this is what I learned. They felt that Linda went into a depression in the late 80s or the early 90s. And as many people that are depressed do, they don't, you don't know that they are. They aren't going to tell you that they are. And so her depression then spiraled down into a deeper depression. And that turned into what they call a disassociative disorder, which is a fancy name for another personality. The other personality's name was Amanda. And Amanda was responsible for the psychotic behaviors. Linda did not know what Amanda did. Now, their greatest fear in her recovery was that at some point, Linda would remember what Amanda did and know that, you know, that she did it, okay? And I thank God that that never happened because they felt if that happened, she would have had a relapse and that would not, that would not have allowed the recovery that eventually came. I took her home from San Antonio and put her in a facility here in the Warren area and an investigation got underway through the township. There was $32,000 missing from the township. We did not benefit from the vast majority of those monies. They were sent to different states to five or six different people who were dealing online with somebody named Amanda Milano, didn't even know there was a Linda Cronister uh, that they were aware of. Linda did childcare in our home at that time. She could not do that anymore. There was a lot of newspaper and television coverage concerning this. And 
Linda knew that something was going on because of everything that was happening, but she could not remember doing it. So uh, I was in the insurance business at that point. Uh, that's commission sales. All this newspaper and television coverage made it very hard for me to make a living. I had already resigned the township fiscal officer's position. So our income dropped by two-thirds, and a total of 70 charges were brought against Linda and I. I cashed in my 26-year public employee retirement system pension early at a 35% penalty because it was the only way that I could make a wrong right. At 45 years old, everything that I had worked for was completely gone. Our home was for sale, my pension, my career, and my reputation. I paid back $32,000 to the township, and I gave them an additional $6,000 because I felt bad about the special audit that they had to go through. Um, and then we had over $50,000 in legal fees connected with this situation. And in March of 2000, after selling our home, we moved into a small condo in Cortland. And shortly after that, on April 8th of 2000, my dad passed away. When I gave my dad's eulogy, it was the lowest point in my life. I felt that I had left everyone down. His faith in the final days of his life gave me the strength to move forward in my life. And Linda's case was the first one that went, and in, that was in 2000. She was sentenced to six months in a Neocap facility in Warren. Now, I was, I was really upset about this because she was a very sick woman, and I did not understand that. And I really think moving forward to today, to today I don't think that would have been handled in the same way. But it is what it is. When I came home from San Antonio, I let my attorney know that I would be willing to take a polygraph and, uh, and then plead guilty to the dereliction of duty charge and all the other charges would be dropped. Prosecutor at that time refused to do that. And I went to trial nine months later. In the meantime, they offered several different plea bargains, of which I would not accept because I did not do what they said that I did. And I just was going to trust to God at that time and go to trial because it was about us, it was about our name, it was about our reputation. And um, one week before I was to go to trial, prosecutor got a hold of our attorney and said, we would like Rand to take a polygraph in Akron with an independent polygrapher by the name of Robert Evans. And uh, if he passes that polygraph, we will drop all the charges but one, and he would plead guilty to the, the uh, dereliction of duty. So my attorney explained everything to him. He says, Rand, this is your decision. He says, you've been up front with me the whole time. He said, it's up to you. I said, I told him I would do this 10 months ago, and I will do this now, because I just wanted to take care of my family is what I wanted to do. So as I was driving to Akron, I simply put this in God's hands because I had never taken a polygraph before. When I got there, Mr. Evans, who those of you that watch Dateline 2020, this guy, is, he's known all over the country. Uh, he's probably retired by now. But uh, he took me in a room, he hooked me up to the polygraph, and he asked me about 12 to 15 questions. In the beginning, it was very basic, and then they got more and more about the township. The last question that he asked me was, did you have any knowledge of or any participation in the missing money from the township? And I said, no, I did not. 
Five minutes later, my attorney comes into the room and he says, Rand, he said that was, he said that was a very uh, good, uh, you know, positive uh, polygraph. Uh, and uh, he's on the phone with the uh, uh, prosecutor's office as we speak. So uh, the next morning, the prosecutor dropped 29 to 30 charges against me. And uh, I pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge of dere dereliction of duty. Now, something I want to say here, uh, I, I take this charge very seriously. I had spent 14 years in the auditor's office. I had spent eight years on a school board. I had been 10 years as the township fiscal officer. I understood my oath of office. I understood my duties. But the way that Linda and I shared the job, I didn't know, and I should have known, and that was on me, and I deserved that charge. The next day in the newspaper it was a front page article with pictures and everything. It was from the Tribune Chronicle. And they were saying how I had passed the polygraph and that all these charges had been dropped, that I had no knowledge of the missing money and that I had been honest and cooperative throughout the investigation. But the most important thing that they said in that article was that Linda was receiving treatment. That meant something to me because they realized that she was sick at that time. Um, I think you have to realize something about Linda and I. Um, we met in, in 1968 at Green Nazarene Church. I was 13, she was 12, okay? We started dating in 1971. For some of you, they called it going steady back then, okay? And, and uh, in 1974, we were engaged. 1975, we were married. We were raising two sons together. I could not ask for a better wife or a better, a better mother. Uh, it was, Linda's one of the most selfless people that I've ever known. It's never about her. So for them to recognize that she, she had an illness meant the world to me because I wanted people to know who she really was. That wasn't what was being depicted in the newspaper or on, on, tel on television. And when I look back at that time, and I look forward to today to see her recovery, I knew back then that I served a God that was fully capable of bringing her back to who she was. I was thrilled for all the people that had believed in me during this difficult time. I was who I said I was. And I received a one-month sentence. I was never behind bars, and I was on work release five days a week. 1993 through 2001 was the longest, deepest valley of my life. I learned that God does not always give us what we want, but takes us where he wants us to go and draws us closer to him as he works out his will in our lives. It is difficult, but he is with us every step of the way. The insurance company that I worked for in 2003 took away our group health insurance. Linda was still recovering and the, my sons were still my responsibility. So I got a hold of my brother Dan and uh, asked about, he worked at Pace Pontiac and Saturn. I never saw myself selling cars. No one writes in their high school yearbook that that's what they plan to do. But over the next 17 years, God blessed me in that business and uh, at both Saturn and Coal Valley Pontiac Cadillac. In February of 2005, we were homeowners again. 
As I looked at our new home, I did not know at 50 years old with a 30-year mortgage facing me if I would be able to pay for it before the retirement age of 70 and be able to afford to live there because of all that had happened with our finances and my pension. In August of 2007, my oldest son, Scott, married his fiancée, Stephanie, and they went on their honeymoon and came back, and start, Scott started his first full year of teaching at Lakeview Schools. We got a call from Stephanie on a Thursday morning of that week saying that they lived in Streetsboro at the time, that she had taken Scott to Hillcrest Hospital near Cleveland because of pains in his shoulder and his chest, and she said she would keep us posted. Later that day, Linda called me at work and told me that Scott had been diagnosed with cancer. Scott was 27 years old. Scott's eyes locked in on mine as I walked into his hospital room that evening, and the strength was given to me as I walked towards him. He stood up, and I took him in my arms, and I told him, Scott, you are going to get through this. And I saw Stephanie, a new bride, and it broke my heart to think what she must be going through. And I began to pray. My words were measured, and I often had to stop and compose myself, but prayed that God would reach down and heal him, and that he would know and feel God's presence at that time, and know that God was doing that. Next day, we learned that he had a tumor that stretched across his chest, taking in the heart and the lungs. And we were given a very direct 50-50 direct chance. If the chemo was successful, it would shrink the tumor. Then they would be able to do surgery to remove it. There was no guarantees. For the 13 weeks of treatment, I wrote him a handwritten letter each week. Within each letter were my thoughts to encourage and strengthen him. And I always included a Bible verse. My Bible is marked with those verses and his name. A seven-hour surgery was scheduled at Cleveland Clinic. And in the meeting after the surgery, we were told that they had to take a part of the lung because it was a danger. And Scott was just coming out of the anesthesia. And he asked me, is it good or is it bad? And I told him it was good. And he relaxed and he went back to sleep. Our son Scott has been cancer-free since 2007. And I think back to Linda's words in September of 1989. I am the Lord your God. I have heard your prayers. I will honor them. I have built a hedge around you and your family. Peace hath come. In 2012, my youngest son, Matt, married his fiance, Ashley. When I seen the joy in Linda's eyes as she experienced her sons finding love, marriage, buying homes, and now the grandchildren that we are blessed with, she was here to see and love every moment. Linda has been medicine-free since her five-year recovery. God has brought a complete healing to her mind, except when she gets mad at me once in a while. <laughs> August of 2017, my mom passed away from Alzheimer's at 86 years old, and I prepared her eulogy. Mom's six children lined up around her coffin and carried her out of the church. And my sister Brenda was lined up near me. And forever etched in my heart are her words. Though at times I've tried to forget them, I have also wrestled with them. And ultimately, I am thankful for them. Brenda said, you really have an ability to connect with people as you speak. You need to seek out opportunities to speak. And that was the start 
of why I'm standing in front of you today. On October, in October of 2017, on Route 77, heading to North Carolina on vacation, I felt God speaking to me in a very methodical and definite way. He reminded me of all we had been through and all that had been restored. And I felt him saying, now what are you going to do? You need to get ready. Tears were running down my face, and his presence was so very real. The only thing I could picture was standing in churches, as I am today, telling people how faithful and real God had been in my life. In April of 2018, Linda's Aunt Mary passed away at 93 years old. Linda had taken care of her from 2001 to 2018. At Aunt Mary's death, Linda was her heir, and I was able to retire in December of 2019 from Coal Valley at 65 years old and not 70, and our mortgage was paid off. He, he had taken care of that too. It was further evidence of God's faithfulness. Late summer of 2018, I called my sister Liz as a fleece about putting my testimony on paper. I asked her to pray about it, and I did not bring it up to her again. In October, Liz responded. She said, golfing is over for the year. Let's start working on your testimony. I smiled. I said, okay, Lord, that's confirmation. And I told my sister, yes, I'm ready. Liz is here today. This testimony and the ability for me to present it and have it all in the form that it's in, I could not done, have done without her. Uh, so thank you, Liz. My sister Liz and I worked on this testimony until February of 2020. And I scheduled my first church to speak at, and that was on March 15th of 2020. Spoke at that church, and then the next week, everything got shut down with the pandemic. So the other scheduling that I had done all got kind of canceled there. But during that time, there was going to be two things that was going to happen in my life, in the life of my family, that would really affect this testimony uh, and, and, affect, and have a drastic effect on me also. On Thursday, May 9th of 2020, I received a phone call informing me, informing me that my brother Dan had taken his life in his garage, in his truck, by carbon monoxide poisoning. I was shocked and stunned, and I didn't really know how to feel. And on Friday, I started to grieve with tears and memories of my brother. He was 53 years old, and things were happening in his life that I considered to be very positive. But he had suffered through bouts of depression, and we always felt that it was under control. That's what he led us to believe. So this came as a great shock to all of us. On Saturday, I started to question how he could do this. And Linda helped me to understand his state of mind and from what she could remember from her experience 20 years earlier. And by Sunday, I was deeply troubled by what I kept envisioning as his last hours preparing to take his life. God answered me in such a revealing and powerful way that I actually pictured the following in my mind. And you can put any tag on this and you can call it anything you want, but I see it as God meeting my need at that point in my grief. I could see a darkened garage with my brother's truck and his body in that truck after he had just breathed his last breath. I heard the back door of the garage open up and Satan came walking in to claim his prize. And Jesus appears, and he positions himself between my brother and Satan. 
And Jesus speaks. He is mine. He belongs to me. You may have taken away his joy and happiness. You were successful in making his life miserable, which along with his depression caused him to take his life. But over 2,000 years ago, I died on the cross for his sins long before he was born. And as a young man, he accepted that gift. He asked me to come into his heart and his life. He asked me to forgive his sins. And he told me that he would do his best to live and serve me. Jesus continued speaking and said, I am here today to take his soul. And he looked at Satan and said, you will leave here with only his deceased and decaying body. He is mine. He belongs to me. And today he will be with me in heaven. Tears welled up in my eyes and joy filled my heart as I realized once again that our God is a promise keeper. I want to share a scripture that God has laid on my heart at the time of grieving my brother's death. It is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39 from the NIV version. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Just a month later, after speaking at my second church, on Thursday, June 18th, I was opening a bag of potting soil. Now, either I'm getting weaker or things are getting harder to open, but I exerted an awful lot of pressure in opening up uh, that, that bag. And about 10 minutes later, I was watering flowers in the backyard, and I could feel a pulsating in my chest, and it wasn't comfortable. And, um, and I'd never felt anything like that before. So I went in the house, and I told Linda, I said, well, I said, I'm going to take a shower. I'm going to try to just kind of walk this thing off. Well, <clears throat> as any good wife would do, while I was in the shower, she called the Cortland EMTs, and I was barely dressed when they were coming in the house. So they took a, um, an EKG and my vitals. They said both of them looked fine. So now I self-diagnosed myself. I said, well, with all that strain, I pulled a chest muscle or something. And they said, well, we have to take you to the hospital, Mr. Cronister. And I said, well, no, I can sign off, can't I? And they said, yes, so that's what I did. I signed off. Didn't sleep real well that night. I got up the next morning. That's my golf day with my group. And I went and played 18 holes of golf. I wasn't short of breath or anything. But when I put the tee down in the ground, I felt a little bit of discomfort. So I came home that day, took it easy, went to bed early that night because I had not slept well the night before, but I never really fell asleep. And at 1 o'clock in the morning, I started to feel a pain in my shoulder. And uh, so I woke Linda up, and I told her I was going to go to the St. Joe's ER. And I did not want her to go with me because during the pandemic, she would not have been allowed to go into the hospital. And I didn't want her out in the parking lot by herself. So I drove to St. Joe's ER, still convinced that this was a muscle pull or a strain. Within 10 minutes of arriving at the emergency room, they were putting nitro under my tongue and blood thinners through an IV in my arm, and there was a flurry of activity around me. 25 minutes later, the ambulance arrives at St. Joe's, and my ambulance with sirens blaring and lights flashing is speeding towards St. Elizabeth's Hospital. I knew then that it was serious, but there was no fear. 
It was in his hands, and I was completely calm. And I look back at that two years ago, and I'm still absolutely amazed by that. I had two people in the back of the ambulance with me, so I prayed a silent prayer and told him either way I was okay, but told him I love my family and I would like to stay. Linda was to find out five months later from friends she had met through working at Clementi Ambulance that the medics who transported me to St. E's did not think I would make it to the hospital because they knew that I was having a massive heart attack. I will never be the same because of that ride in the ambulance. I have felt his presence many times in my life, but never at that level. They rushed me into the St. Elizabeth cath lab and put me on a table, and a doctor and three assistants were waiting. I felt a boldness and asked if I could pray before they started. And when I said amen, the doctor said amen and started the procedure. They found a 99.9% .9 blockage in the LED artery, or what they call the Widowmaker. And after clearing the blockage, they put in a stent. God had granted my request in the ambulance. And within 28 hours, I was sent home from the hospital with minimal damage to the heart muscle. I will continue to give him the glory and honor that he so much deserves, as I am doing today, for as long as he gives me breath. This is what I've learned in the past 61 years since accepting Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Being a Christian does not give us a free pass from sorrow, pain, sickness, and death. Our difficult experiences do not always end in victory. Our prayers are not always answered per our request, and there isn't always a wonderful storybook ending. There is no clear answer to the blessings and difficulties in our lives, and what happens on earth often is so very hard to understand. But his promises are always true, because if not on earth, they will be fulfilled in an eternity in heaven. Revelations chapter 21, verse 4, King James Version. And God shall wipe away tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. As you leave here today, take this with you. We serve a God that is real. We serve a God that is faithful. We serve a God that is a promise keeper. And we serve a God that loves each one of us more than we can ever ever imagine. No matter what your situation is, you hold on to that and you move forward in your faith. He will never leave you or forsake you. May God bless each one of you. And thank you for the chance to share our testimony with you this morning at Rock of Grace. It can be tough to hear stuff like that, right? Because uh, as, uh, as I'm talking, can we have the altar team? Uh, we're gonna, we need to respond, right? We have to. So as I'm speaking, if the altar team could take your positions, it's even okay if you're up front over here. I think a lot of times as Christians, it's easy to say... Um, I'm not depressed, or some of these things that happen, uh, kind of like hiding them, because it show we we feel like it shows weakness. But in reality, those things are so so real, 
there are real struggles and there are real attacks to the enemy and there's real things that happen, right? But what is also just as real and more powerful than those things is the power of Jesus Christ. Is the peace that passes understanding when we surrender to a king who fulfills every promise. Many of you have heard my testimony too. I've experienced devastating loss. And I don't have all the answers. But I know the one who does. Can we maybe dim the lights a little bit? Yeah, thank you. Church, can we stand together? We're going to take just a few minutes before we go about our day. And I'm asking, could just everybody close your eyes right now. And at any point when I'm talking or praying, if you know that you need prayer, go now. Okay? The altars are open. Just make your way to the sides. I know some of you, uh, I've struggled with depression. I've never shared that with a lot of people. Some of us are struggling with things that we know our parents and our grandparents struggled with. Some of us are need healing and have cancer or a sickness. Some of us are just have anxiety and struggle to sleep at night. Some of us have an overwhelming fear even to go to the altar for prayer. But I'm telling you right now that if you have courage... He can do anything. He created you and loves you so much, and he wants you to just give him your all. So if you struggle with that fear, would you go to the altar? Just anybody on these sides, just make your way. Now, I know, I know it takes courage, but I'm asking you to have that courage. If any of you needs healing in your body, if any of you struggle with that fear, if any of you are struggling with your marriage and need it, and need a healing. If anybody has just that unanswered, you don't know what to do. We serve a God who can do anything, church. Anything. Anything. Let's bring up that music a little bit. We're just going to take a couple minutes. He can do anything. He can heal your cancer. He can heal your migraine headaches. The Bible tells us to lay hands on each other. Amen. I see some of you going. Don't leave this place and wish you would have gone. God, we worship you. We worship you, Jesus. like there's somebody that has a significant problem with hearing and have tried many different hearing aids and it just doesn't work and um, and you've really struggled with that. You've even had to just order or think about spending money on new hearing aids. Is that anybody in here? Just wave if it's you. Amen. Can we reach our hands over this way. 
we speak healing in the name of Jesus over our brother, that no weapon that is formed against him would be able to prosper, that Jesus, you would help him to walk in the fullness of your victory, Lord God, no matter if he gets the answer he wants or not. But our desire and our ask this morning is that you would outpour your spirit's power on Ray and that you would heal him this morning, right now, in the name of Jesus. has a picture on our wall that says what if and it's basically what if the thing you fear happens what will your response be and I know most of us our response is we'll serve God anyways I know if I don't get my new eye on this earth I'm going to worship God anyways right but what if he wants to heal you this morning what if today's the day what if today's the day that cancer is healed in this place what if today's the day going to continue to minister in here. I know this is a different Sunday, but I just want to challenge you that if we're going to keep a time of ministry going on in here, and as we dismiss, I just, I feel that very strongly in my spirit to, to not, if it's you, have courage to go. There is power in that laying on of hands. Amen. So God, we worship you today. And Father, we acknowledge there's things we don't understand, but what we do know is that you are the Savior of the world. You are the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the, the victorious one who reigns on the throne forevermore. And God, we submit to you today. And Father, I just speak over every unanswered prayer, over everyone who has struggled with depression or anxiety, over everyone who has an unspoken request that nobody else knows about in their life, but that you do, that you would move Holy Spirit and bring healing on every heart. We bless you, Jesus. And I bless this amazing family in the name of Jesus the King. Amen. Be blessed, church.